welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. Uh, today, Tuesday, May 31st, um, it's been exactly one week since the Uvalde Massacre, uh, where an armed student um, from a local high school uh, stormed an elementary school. There's really no other way to kind of put that. Um, and uh, killed 19 students and two teachers. Really just horrific uh, crime on every level. Um, and, you know, we've done a couple shows. We've done one show about it. We did one show that day, but it wasn't about it because uh, the news hadn't broken yet. But we did do one show about this already. Um, and now, you know, uh, now we're going to do another one. And this one is going to be kind of more about uh, the police response to the shooting and kind of, and more specifically, uh, kind of like a pushback to this idea that's being floated uh, by some lawmakers that, you know, the solution to the epidemic of mass shootings uh, in, in U.S. schools and, and around the U.S. is to put, you know, more cops in schools. Uh, so, you know, what, what we saw from the police during the shooting and, you know, what has come out since then doesn't really uh, indicate that more police would be helpful at all uh, in, in preventing this stuff. Um, in fact... Uh, we saw that uh, the police, you know, were were in the hallway as the as the shooter was killing kids and and did absolutely uh, nothing. They just kind of sat by. Uh, I think some of the stuff that's come out now is because, um, like, the excuses that they've given have ranged from, you know, we thought that that there were no more survivors to, you know, we didn't have the order from the commanding officer, uh, whatever. It. it I'm not. I'm not particularly interested in in what excuse that they have to give at this point. Um, but one thing I am interested in is pushing back against this uh, horrible idea that we need more guns and more cops in schools. And so to talk about that, I'm joined by uh, Thomas B. Harvey from the Children's Defense Fund, of California. And if you're active on Twitter, you may have uh, seen his account over uh, the last week because on on Wednesday he he had this uh, well received thread. Uh, the start, I'm going to quote, we must urgently resist the call for more guns in schools. Cops don't stop school mass shooting. In fact, studies show the presence of cops increases fatalities in school shootings in addition to the egregious daily violence cops commit against black, brown, and poor youth. Uh, there's much more, but we'll get into it. Uh, Thomas, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, just before we start, can you kind of give us like, like a little bit of an overview about what you guys do at uh, Children's Defense Fund? Sure. Thank, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk a little more about this. I, I do first want to say, I, you know, you mentioned that this um, mass killing occurred just last week, and it's, it's um, obviously the parents and the family members in that community is still grieving. Um, and I don't think it should be, we should skip mentioning that, you know, this just comes 10 days after um, a white supremacist mass shooting in Buffalo. And I think at this point in our in our um, society, we've become desensitized to this kind of egregious violence. And I think um, I, I'm grateful to be on the show and talk about the responses. But I want to make sure we, you know, just acknowledge that this is still people are still grappling with um, not only that mass killing, but but the mass killing in Buffalo as well. So um, with, with that said, I'm the state director for. Um, Children Defense Fund's office in the state of California. 
And Children's Defense Fund is a, is a nearly 50-year-old organization that originates out of the Poor People's Campaign in 1968, where Marion Wright Edelman, our founder, um, was the policy director for that campaign. And there was a decision made for her to um, develop an organization that would focus on issues that were impacting children and youth, mostly black children and youth across the country. Um, and she began that in 1973. And then the, the organization has grown from its DC office as the, the, the number one organization in the country being concerned about um, the rights of children and their health and well-being throughout the country. And we are in a position right now where we are working to uh, support youth and children wherever they are and help support their families and their communities organizing around issues that originated their, you know, their, their dinner table, um, things that they're concerned about. And then our organization attempts to support them in developing campaigns and policy um, out of their concerns. So an attempt to really be more of a grassroots movement and support infrastructure, provide infrastructure support for issues that um, grow out of conversations that just happen around the, the dinner table um, with black and brown families with um, with young children. Great, great. Thanks for that overview. And yes, you're right. I mean, yeah, the Buffalo shooting, uh, you know, that, that that was just 10 days before that and, and, and was also uh, horrific. You know, those two two shootings in one month, um, not to mention, you know, like the, you know, all the other mass shootings that happened over the holiday weekend. Um, but, uh, we only have the capacity to deal with so much here. So, um, so, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, cops and schools and kind of dig into, uh, what you were talking about in that thread and, and, you, you know, your, your work here, you say that, Cops and schools, you know, are not uh, helpful uh, for for safety uh, for mass shootings. You said that they make things worse. Can you kind of uh, explain a little bit more what you, what what you're talking about there, like what the data says? Yeah, the the data shows that um, students that where there is a mass shooting, um, there are there's an increase in fatalities. Um, with respect, if you measure the number of armed uh, school resource officers or, or police officers, there is an impact and in, uh, increase in fatalities uh, with respect to the increase in number of people who are armed. So first, the data shows that armed police officers or school resource officers do not stop or prevent these kind of mass shootings. But even more counterintuitively, I think, to most people, their presence is correlated to an increase in fatalities, and the data from this uh, report, which I can I can share with you later and, and link, and it's linked in the in the thread that I um, the Twitter thread that I wrote, it shows that it's almost a three times it's two point eight three, but I think it's you know nearly three times as many fatalities. Um, so I think at it's at a, the first level, we just have to know that cops and schools don't prevent it. And obviously, this most recent example shows that it doesn't prevent it. There are five. Uvalde had its own police force in the school, five police officers, an armed security guard, in addition to a, a local police department that um, there's massive amounts of money spent on, and it didn't prevent it from happening, and, and, it, and it did not stop um, a great number of children from being murdered that day. So, But that other factor where it seems as if 
this is speculation because the, the, the study doesn't draw a, a causal relationship, but the speculation is that um, people are aware, these shooters are aware that there are armed guards there and they are um, come prepared for a greater fight, which leads to greater fatalities um, because of the presence of armed people within the school. Got it. So it's kind of like, you know, kind of like an escalation on either side, just leading to more and more danger. Yeah, I think we see that, you know, we see that in any context within which there are armed people, um, that that is not a recipe for de-escalation. It's not a recipe for decreased fatalities. It's a, it's a recipe for more harm and more violence. Certainly, certainly. But, yet, you know, it also seems that um, that the presence of police and, and now I'm shifting to like kind of their more like broad function and role within schools. It seems like their their presence in schools alone is is not a positive thing in and of itself. You know, for, for, for a lot of kids uh, that can actually like add to some of the pressures and stress of school. Absolutely. I, I think it's important to, to go back to the origins of cops in schools and think about the way policing really works. Um, if, if, if people are really paying attention to how, what the function of police is, it should come as no surprise that cops in schools are not there for public safety. Uh, I think as, 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 a, as generally people understand it, they're there for social control and social order. So if you look at, um, I think we should think about the presence of police in schools in roughly two phases. One is um, 1940s until Columbine, and then the other, and then the other is after Columbine. And so, if you think about the police in schools before the Columbine shooting, this was solely about social control. The, the first school district to have, <coughs> excuse me, to have an established <clears throat> school resource officer or police officer program is in Flint, Michigan. Um, and if you think about that history, that history is not about public safety. That history is about a um, increasing number of black and brown workers in the auto industry in the 40s coming to Flint and the, the school resource officers are there as a response to um, school districts that are becoming more black and brown because of the promise of work within that area. And then if you look at the other, the proliferation of cops in schools pre-Columbine, it's all timed around Brown versus Board. Um, Advancement Projects National Offices, where I used to work, put out a report in 2018 called We Came to Learn that details this timeline. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible resource and a very valuable resource, but it, it really does show that the whole concept of cops and schools uh, didn't really exist prior to the civil rights era where uh, black people in the United States were arguing for um, integrated schools. And then you begin to see them all over the country and the, and the model in Flint becomes, the, the, the operations in Flint become the model for the country and they proliferate from there. But the, and, and I think if you follow that logic where police were there to criminalize black and brown folks and to 
um, in quotation marks, protect white students from the criminal element as it was described by um, these folks in, in the 1950s and still today that was represented by black and brown students, then you see the logic that um, this isn't about preventing an outside threat from coming into a school historically. This is to prevent, um, this is to prevent, well, I guess, in, I guess in a sense it was considered an outside threat, but, but within the context of the Columbine model that we come to adopt in the, in the 90s, the threat there is from someone coming into the school from outside and shooting it up. Whereas in the, in the civil rights era and the pre-Columbine era, it was about policing black and brown students and criminalize them. You see, in, you see wild examples of this in, for example, Pasco County, uh, Florida, where they've taken this to the relationship between police and schools went so far as to, con to um, include a kind of predictive policing element straight out of the, the minority report where the, the police there were getting data from the school about grades and they, they use that data about grades and behavior to compile a, a focus area on roughly 200 children who the police had concluded through the use of an algorithm um, were future criminals. And this is exactly the logic of the, the policing in schools prior to Columbine. So we see this, um, you know, in, in the modern day, we see how the, the, a disproportionate number of black and brown students are expelled from schools. They are policed for silly things that, um, you know, many people would have just been sent to the principal's office for in the past, but they're, Things like bad grades, skipping class, um, the criticism of school cops leads to uh, children's behavior being criminalized and gets them started down this path towards the school to prison pipeline. So, you know, this early intervention of police criminalizing just the normal behavior of, of kids in school ends up marking them as criminals and determining them as criminals um, by, the, by the adult criminal legal system. Because, because as, as we've said, there just there isn't a lot for these cops to be doing on a daily basis because there isn't a lot of um, what we would call crime in schools. So they're there policing behavior of children and then calling that behavior a criminal act. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that we've we've all seen, you know, most most of the time these stories kind of go viral. So you do end up seeing them because they're just so extreme of, you know, like they'll uh, the, the cops will. Uh, the school resource officers, as they're called, or you know, in in, in school cops or whatever, uh, you know, will will arrest some some kid who's you know in like first grade or something, invariably uh, black or brown student. Like I've never, I, I don't think I've ever seen it happen to a white kid. Not not that I'm saying it never has, but it doesn't seem to be uh, that that exception would probably prove the rule. Um, and like you're saying, yeah, like it just begins that uh, that pipeline uh, school to prison, and I you know. I think it's it's interesting that you you talk in in your thread, and I'm going to quote from this. Uh, Nearly sixty percent of schools pay cops to be in schools uh, at great cost. What don't kids have? One point seven million have no counselors. Three million have no nurse. Six million have no psychologist. Ten million have no social worker. Uh, it certainly does seem like they're being kind of slotted in there as a replacement uh, for. Uh, 
for these resources and because, you know, because they're not going to get these resources, what they're going to get instead is, you know, the, the threat of uh, this kind of carceral system uh, dropping on them, basically. Uh, do, you, do you think that that's accurate? Absolutely. I think that there, there's no greater indication of our um, abandonment of the health and welfare of youth than the presence of police in these schools at the cost of um, the things that we know make make children safer and happier and 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 better adjusted and, and have their needs responded to. If you don't have a counselor, if you don't have a nurse, if you don't have a social worker, if you don't have the supports to to um, provide you nutrition, there there are there are so many other things that we could be spending money on that we choose over and over and over again, regardless of whether it's the school context or our society's context writ large, we choose to spend money on uh, cops and we choose to not spend money on the supports and the infrastructure that actually make people safe and give them a chance to really thrive. So every time a budget comes out, like you see in Uvalde and and you see that they devote 40% of their general fund to policing, you know that that is at the exclusion of the kind of supports that people in that community really need. I think one of the major underreported aspects of that um, mass killing in in Uvalde is that 30% of youth there, of children there, live in poverty. And that actually statistically is lower, uh, significantly lower than it has been in some years. But Uvalde is is an impoverished area. And Buffalo has similar... Uh, not to bring this back to Buffalo, but you see the same pattern of um, a there's a deprivation. There's an is there's an intentional deprivation of resources for Black and Brown communities in this country, but you never short those communities on policing. There are all, there will always be cops, even if there isn't a hospital, even if there isn't a library, even if there isn't a, a, a school. Sometimes there will be cops. Yeah, the sacrifice zones, right? You have to police the sacrifice zones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also say that uh, that you know, going back to the uh, school to prison pipeline, that, that the police uh, put youth on the path to human caging with sixty-one thousand arrests and a suspension every two seconds, with black children two point four times more likely than white uh, students to be arrested, um, and and then you know you cite children's defense. Um, and I'm wondering, like, like how much of, like, what do you guys see in your research as far as like what what the ramifications are? I think I think you've talked about it a little bit, you've hinted at it, but I'm curious as to like what you see concretely as far as you know, like suspension every two seconds, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of of of, of arrests a year of of the, of children of kids uh, by these by these police. Um, it does seem like, you know, just just kind of. Uh, you know, uh, back in the napkin math or whatever, that that, that would lead to uh, people being caught in the cycle. But uh, but it does seem like you guys see some uh, strict data that backs that up. Is that right? Yeah, what we see overwhelmingly is that the people, the, the youth who are arrested, the youth who are um, exposed to the in-school carceral system are then transferred directly into the adult criminal legal system, that this is a, it's, it's school, you know, the, 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 the creation of the cradle to prison pipeline, which is what Children's Defense Fund is called, but the school to prison pipeline is simply 
um, a seamless transfer of black and brown and poor children from a school policed environment to um, prisons and the, 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 the community policed environments. So if you are, um, if you are a youth who is subject to in school discipline and then criminalized in school discipline, you are significantly more likely, I don't have that data in front of me, but I can share it later to uh, become houseless, to remain unemployed, to uh, develop uh, substance abuse issues. These, these things are related because it, it, it begins a path of criminalization that continues throughout the life of the child. And the, the other nefarious piece of this is sometimes, often, when the, a child is, um, their behavior is criminalized, there's an investigation into the parents, right? There's a child welfare system that operates much in the same way as um, this child policing system and this adult policing system, which is to criminalize, to further criminalize poor black and brown parents because of the behavior of their children. In no other um, area in our country are parents held as directly responsible for the behavior of child, you know, childlike behavior as in the school policing system. So this, you, what ends up happening is a, a dual assault, both on the children who are criminalized and their parents who are criminalized and destabilized or further destabilized if they aren't already destabilized. So the, the, the importance is that this is, it's not an accident and there are predictable outcomes that we can see within, um, within that environment. That, that we have to continue to work on. So in, in Los Angeles, for example, we work within a coalition of youth who are in the, the juvenile caging system, which is the largest juvenile, juvenile caging system in the United States. And you can see these disparities writ large. If you just look at who's in those systems, the, the data shows that you have a massive overrepresentation of um, black and brown children and impoverished children relative to white children or children with uh, some who are above the poverty level in L.A. County. And so that ends up with these, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds who are in sometimes adult jails, because even though L.A. County has the largest uh, youth caging system in the world, they don't have enough facilities they don't have enough cages to put all the children in so they end up putting them in the adult caging system as well so that that it's it's impossible to deny the impact on these youth of being criminalized at such an early age and the long-term effects of that criminalization yeah yeah i mean that's it's it's it does seem to be a pretty clear you know, one-to-one. I think that it's important too, to, uh, to point out that while, you know, that's what happens to these students, um, the, the officers themselves, when they, when they do something, uh, horrific or wrong or or whatever, like they they don't really seem to face many consequences unless the, the, you know, the, uh, the criminal act is, is, is pretty horrific. Um, uh, you know, I'm thinking in, uh, I was, I was sent this by, uh, 
one one of the listeners who who wasn't able to to listen live. I'm hope hopefully he recognized that I'm talking about him now when he's listening on replay. Um, but this is from 2011 um, in Frederick County, uh, I believe that's in Virginia. A 46 year old deputy who worked in the school uh, was arrested and charged with having sexual contact with a 14 year old girl uh, who attends the school where he worked as a resource officer. Um, ninth grade student in appropriate relationship. I won't go into the details, but they, you know, suffice to say that they're pretty disgusting. Um, and you know, he looks like he did go to jail, but, but, you know, you have to think of, of, of how often this kind of thing happens where you have, uh, these, these men who have, you know, this level of power over, over a student body of, of children who they're increasingly thought to view as kind of like inhuman, um, and then, uh, you know, when, when, when they do something abusive like this, um, you know, when they get caught, sure. But, uh, I mean, you also have this situation in Long Beach. This happened just, just last year, I believe in September, uh, where, uh, and you link to this in your thread, uh, where the, uh, the, the school district of, uh, the safety officer fired into a car, killing one, uh, 18 year old, uh, female passenger, um, you know, it, it's just like, I mean, like, why is that guy shooting at, at, at a car in the first place? Right. But all that happens to him, it seems like is that he was terminated. Right. And so, uh, it, there does seem to be like a kind of a, a difference in accountability, you know? Absolutely. And I think you mentioned something that's very important and underreported and it's the incidence of, um, sexual assault, rape, sexual violence committed by police. Um, school resource officers, cops in schools, and the youth. They are, um, there are anecdotally, you, you know, the, the ones that you're going to catch in the newspaper occasionally are not the full scope of the problem that we're seeing. Um, before I left Advancement Projects, we, we uh, another lawyer that began a program, a project um, working on investigating this. And I think you're going to see some important data emerge about the shocking number of incidents, sexual assaults and violence committed by police officers and school resources officers against youth um, while they're in this position. So, you know, if you, if you just scan, if you just Googled school resource, resource officer and sexual assault, you would find an alarming number of stories where this got, got into the press. But if you know anything about the way sexual violence is reported overall, and I don't even mean when it involves uh, police, when it's just intimate partner violence, it's one of the least reported, least prosecuted um, aspects of harm that we have. And when it involves someone like a cop, even less so, because the process of making the complaint involves obviously going to the place where the person works and asking his colleagues, his or her colleagues, to prosecute them or, or initiate, um, not prosecute, initiate a, a, an investigation or an arrest or to receive a complaint about the violence and the, and the um, harm that that police officer has done. So the, the number of people that this is happening to is, is unimaginable. And I think we're gonna see more ab about that in the near future if um, Mauro's uh, work is able to continue there and, and she's able to to get more data around this. To, to your other point about accountability, there's the, the piece that I just mentioned, which is that sexual violence is, is rarely reported 
Um, and so we don't get, to the extent any kind of accountability is actually possible through the criminal legal system, we don't get it in instances of sexual violence. And we even it's even less likely to occur when a cop is involved um, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure are familiar to your your listeners by now. But um, police unions, which are barely labor organizations, um, there, you know, there is no equivalent labor organization or union where the members of the union actively suppress the labor rights of other unions. But that that is what we are asked to believe a cop union is. But in any case, these these contracts that cops have with schools, with school districts and with cities um, prohibit accountability. They they go out of their way to create an impossible, a virtually impossible system for people to navigate to achieve accountability. Um, and then when you get into the criminal legal system, you're battling even greater obstacles because the prosecutors themselves are cops. Um, they are aligned with police in ways that I don't think most people understand. These The police are the investigators for prosecutors, so they are very unlikely and very unwilling to prosecute police. There are, there are rare instances of this, but it just doesn't, it's almost impossible to, to achieve. And then imagine you have this, this moment where you've had an unlikely thing happen where someone reports harm committed against them by a cop and that the cops investigate and the prosecutor files charges. Now you go to possibly a trial and you're having to overcome, you know, 50 years of propaganda put out by TV, radio, um, journalists um, in sh- that, that has ended up creating a world in which police are heroes um, and can never do wrong. And so I think, to, again, just to come back to your point about accountability, it's extremely unlikely for police officers to be held accountable in any way, um, let alone through the criminal legal system. I, I would share just briefly that I, I, um, my initial work was in St. Louis, and I was I ran an organization called Arch City Defenders during the time that when, when Mike Brown was murdered and during the Ferguson uprising. And one of the calls and the main calls was for some kind of reform around police and some kind of um, accountability. And because Darren Wilson, the, the Ferguson police officer who murdered Mike Brown, had been kicked out of police forces all around that region. And it came to, it, I mean, every black and brown person in St. Louis knew this already. And, and I knew it by virtue of representing folks um, who'd had this encounter, but there were 90 municipalities in, a, in that region and police were bouncing from municipality to municipality after having committed serious violence against other people. So it's not, it's not just in, this, in the school resource officer context or in this context of sexual violence. Police overall throughout our country um, are just virtually unaccountable to the public that they are um, at least ostensibly supposed to be serving. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I do want to, I, I, I do want to just, just dig in a little bit. I also want to say, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to call in with a comment or question, uh, please feel free. Um, but, you know, you know, we talked a lot about abuse here, uh, but I, you know, I also just wanted to just, just ask you a little bit about, you know, this incident in Long Beach where, you know, where the, where the school cop shoots into the, into the car and, 
and kills you know kills one uh, uh, Manuel Mona Rodriguez, um, I, I believe. Yeah, uh, she was the one who was killed, mother of a five month old boy, um, and uh, it just seems like all that happened to him was that he got fired. And and like you're saying with with Darren Wilson, that doesn't even necessarily mean he's not going to get rehired somewhere else. Um, you know what? With that level of 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 unaccountability, un- unaccountable violence, um, what what hope really is there that uh, that anything can really change uh, as far as 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 far as as holding these guys accountable? Yeah, I, I do think. Um... Eddie Gonzalez, the cop that shot there, did get charged with murder. I don't know what the um, results are, and I'm almost positive this comes um, after Gascon takes over as DA in Los Angeles, you know, sort of campaigning on a being a, a quote unquote progressive prosecutor. So, but but reg- regardless of that, you're right. The 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 initial reporting was simply that he was fired, and there was every likelihood that he would be uh, reinstated. To, to, I'll come back to Long Beach in a second, but I want to say that if you think about the Parkland, Florida shooting, um, mass shooting, it was previously the largest um, number of fatalities in a mass shooting uh, since Columbine. But the officers there hid um, outside while the killing was, was taking place. And while they got uh, suspended, they were all reinstated. So the, the accountability was, if anything, temporary. And those, those officers were reinstated. I mean, I think we're going to find out um, some more information about Uvalde police's role and, and their sort of abject failure to prevent this or to stop this, this mass killing from happening. But there's a, there's a, a parallel, which is in, in Parkland, when this, which is what prompted Advancement Project's um, report, we came to learn, that that shooting prompted this call for more cops in schools. And there was a cop standing outside who did nothing. And this is where the case emerges because family members sued to try to hold the police accountable, at least to the civil legal system. And the, the court ruled that police have no affirmative duty to protect um, youth during that, during a, a mass shooting. So the very, the very notion, I think at, at, at our core, people believe cops are there to protect us, cops are there to make us safe. And the courts have told us repeatedly, that's not true. They do not have an affirmative duty to stop anything from happening or to keep you safe. They can elect in on, on a moment-by-moment basis to determine how, who they're going to keep safe and how they're going to do it. And I think that's what we see play out more commonly is police make decisions, police departments make decisions, cities make decisions, prosecutors make decisions about what crime is and what is going to be policed, and who is going to p- be policed. And inevitably, it's, it is not um, wealthy white people who are policed. It is poor black and brown people and, and youth. But, but to come back to the Long Beach situation, and, and your, your real question there, I think, is what gives us hope that there can be accountability? Yeah. When, I, when, I, um, when I think about this, I think the, the real hope is the organizing that happens around um, cops in schools or acts of violence committed by police. And that happened in, in the Long Beach School District. A, a small group of parents got together and, and are um, organizing tr- to try to get cops out of schools. 
there's a nationwide effort to try to get cops out of schools. Um, and I think their, um, their successes, although somewhat limited because this is a, an adversary that is unparalleled in strength um, and resources and societal support, but their successes are, are inspiring. The, there have been, um, there's been money moved from school police to the kind of services we're talking about. There, there, there's real organizing at a grassroots level among people who have experienced the harm and the violence of policing in schools that is inspiring and is, and is cause for hope. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a long fight. It's an intergenerational fight, but the, that's the kind of place that um, whenever I do get into um, moments where I wonder what, what, it, what reason is there to, to keep up that fight and to, to keep advocating around these things, it's, it's organizations and, and grassroots groups that um, are fighting to get cops out of schools. And I, I link to a resource, um, defundpolice.org, created by inter interrupting criminalization, where you can find campaigns, whether it's, um, whether it's straight defund street cops or it's school cops, you can find um, a, a tr treasure trove of resources there for campaigns that people might want to get involved in. And that's just defundpolice.org. And there's a searchable database by city and region if, uh, if your listeners are interested. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's a good... Uh... That's good. We'll, we'll, we'll link to that in the show description, uh, as well. Um, you know, I, I do think that we should talk a little bit about the Uvalde police response. Um, just cause you know, we mentioned it mentioned at the top and then, and then you just, we're talking about it again in the context of, uh, in the context of Parkland. Um, it really does seem like they just dismissed, you know, any, possibility of of accountability on their end um and we're we're, we're happy to just have uh well i don't know what happy but 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 they were they were they were less interested with with going in to stop the ongoing killing uh than they were uh to kind of stay out of it whether to you know protect themselves or to or, or because they were waiting for for some kind of you know order uh, to tell them what to do, and and as you say, like they don't you know they don't have an obligation uh, to help, but they also hindered you know outside as the parents were trying to get them to do something, then trying to go in by themselves. What they did instead of of going in and and taking action was to you know uh, beat and pepper spray and even arrest uh, some of these parents whose children were inside us, uh, you know, at least one of whom whose, whose child had already been killed or was going to be killed. Um, and I think that that does kind of show what we're talking about here, right? That does kind of show what they see their real job as, what they see their real purpose as. Um, would you agree with that? Do you think that that's, that, that their response there was just like, they're, they're much more comfortable in kind of controlling the population than going into a situation where, where there might be some risk to them or, you know, where, where it might be a little more chaotic than they can control. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um, well, I mean, we don't have to speculate on this because they said it, right? That the, the police in Uvalde and their spokespeople have said they didn't want to go in because they might've been killed. And they, they talked about needing more resources. That's why, that's in part why I wrote the thread that I wrote was because 
the predictable response will be because the elasticity uh, in the narrative around policing is such that even when you have an example of their abject failure, they somehow leverage that to get more money and more resources. So that's what's terrifying about this moment is, you know, so many children were murdered on that day and we don't yet know what prompted the, the killing and we don't know what everything that happened inside. But we do know that police have been a massive amount of money has been allocated to police in that city. The school had its own police force. The police were there and they did nothing to prevent it. And as you said, what they did was prevent parents from going inside. They even handcuffed and pepper sprayed and beat parents who were complaining about the fact that rightly complaining that the cops were not doing anything to stop the murder of their children while they stood outside. The children were calling from the school inside the school, <clears throat> begging for police to do something and police did nothing. And I think that that moment just crystallizes what their role is because this is, you know, you, you can talk to police about this. You can see police say this publicly. You can see it in fictionalized accounts of police. Their number one job is to get home that night. That's their number one job. In spite of the fact that we've been convinced and persuaded and begged to believe that they are there to make us safe. If it's choice between us and them, they will choose themselves every time, which completely obliterates the notion of why we spend so much money on policing. They're not there keeping us safe. They do very little to keep us safe. And they will even tell you that. And this moment is, is illustrative of that. It illustrates exactly that. I think one of the aspects that um, perhaps isn't being talked about enough is the way in which the, and I'm still thinking through this myself, so, I want a, a little bit of like room to think it through with you, but sure, it of seems as if the, the narrative of some of the police officers is there's the typical narrative of we, we didn't have the right equipment. We didn't have the right, um, we didn't have the body armor, although they did have body armor. They didn't have all the resources and the things that they wanted. That's standard response. Like, oh, we need other things. You, you the city, need to provide us with more resources so we can protect you better, even though we're not going to. But then on the other side is this, this, this um, thought process that you alluded to where they said, they were waiting for something to happen. They were waiting for a protocol to be followed. They were waiting for um, some specialized force to come in. And that is um, dangerous as well, right? It's, it's an under, um, I think an undernoted piece of this is the further specialization of these police, the further, the more money you put in, the more likely they are to believe potentially that the cop who showed up initially isn't the cop who's supposed to stop the shooting because the only person who should stop the shooting is the specialized training team that had, um, you know, X, Y, Z weapon that would be better for this situation. And that's outrageous. That, that traps us in a, a even greater spiral of cops have to have more money in order to protect, to protect us. Um, these cops had just gone through training. They had been trained to the hilt. Um, they'd been armed to the hilt. There's no reason for them not to go in there. But I, I don't want to belabor the fact that they, that this is, um, that, that these cops somehow were uniquely bad, because that's another terrifying moment we're in. If, if you think about 
been thinking a lot about the George Floyd, the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. And I think similar to what we're seeing here is conservatives and police and experts on violence are willing to sacrifice the Uvalde Police Department in order to preserve the institution of policing writ large. So the way Derek Chauvin was treated um, was characterized in the trial for George Floyd's murder was that Derek Chauvin was barely a police officer. He was a rogue cop. He was outside of policing. It allowed for all these chiefs of police from across the nation to write a letter saying that what George, that what uh, Derek Chauvin did wasn't even policing and that no, they would never allow any officer in their um, service to do that. And I think we're seeing the same thing with Uvalde because these police didn't go in and because they are, you know, they're, they're, these cops, other cops are calling Uvalde cops cowards. Um, and while that certainly may be true, I don't think it's unique or special about this police force in Uvalde, Texas. I think we see this, like I said, we saw it in, um, in the, 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 the shooting in, in Florida. We see that in a, in a variety of places. If you think about the, the last several, I shouldn't laugh about this, but the last several high-profile incidents that we've seen, um, it's been unarmed people stopping these shootings, or it's been people identifying the, 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 the young man in New York who identified the subway attacker or the member of the congregation in Orange County, California, that stopped a shooting in a church there um, a few weeks ago. It's, it's not the police who are doing this, and it's not because the police aren't there. It's because they're not doing what we perceive as their job, what we wrongly have been, what we wrongly perceive as their job, what we've been we've been told to imagine there's your job. But the moment here isn't to say Uvalde is uniquely bad or incompetent. The moment here is to say this police are not there to make you safe or to protect you. And I think that's what we have to be very careful with um, in this in this critical moment where people are really looking at what police do and what they don't do. Yeah, I agree. I think I've definitely seen that. Uh, I I guess kind of throwing them under the bus, uh, pretending that they're some sort of an aberration uh, as opposed to, you know, just uh, the expression of what uh, police in, in the U S are and what they do. Um, I I certainly agree with that. And I think that you're right that they are doing that uh, in, in order to kind of protect uh, the institution as a whole. I mean, you kind of, you, you kind of do see this uh, as well, not, not only in these, you know, extreme um, moments, uh, but but you also see it, you know, in, in moments like uh, the the last time that the Buffalo police were, were in the national news when they um, when they knocked down that uh, protester during the George Floyd uprising in that city uh, down in, and, you know, he, he was in the hospital after nailing the back of his head um, and that was caught on video. That was that was that was a big deal. But the same kind of thing, you know, like oh, that guy doesn't represent all cops. Uh, but you know, it does kind of start to beg the question that they that you know is, it maybe is is not wanted to be asked. But you know, uh, we keep on hearing about how they don't represent that doesn't represent all cops. That that doesn't represent the good cops. But uh, increasingly, and I know that I'm, I'm, this is not you know an original take. This has been said by a lot of different people, but. Um, if if there are good cops, then where are they? Because they don't appear to be uh, coming out for any of this stuff. So, 
so so what's it going to take, right? Like, and 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 it it seems pretty unclear that that uh that that even exists. Um, and and you know the the simplest explanation would probably be the true one, which is that uh, no, actually the, these guys just represent policing in America, and this is what it is. Yeah, I think that Buffalo example is a is a good one because if you remember when um, the uh, I think when those cops were the investigation began and when they were charged, the other police officers in that unit um, said they were all transferring. It was it was first reported as if they quit, but of course they weren't quitting because these are these jobs that police officers have are, are among the best jobs they will ever be able to get in their lives. So they're they're not going to quit these jobs where. They can act with impunity, um, do very little to keep community safe, and um, maintain a high level, a high salaried job with the opportunity for enormous amounts of over- overtime. But in that moment, it is interesting because the the other members of that unit um, they did protest. They 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 effectively walked off the job, saying that um, if this kind, if knocking a seventy five year old man to the ground and cracking his skull is determined to be um, bad behavior. Uh, we don't want to be a part of this department because that's just that's just what we do. And I think one of the most really terrifying moments of that caught on video was there There had been a, I don't remember if it was the guy, that the cop that knocked him down or another cop, but someone briefly pauses to help that older man up or to, to try to attend to him. And it, it sort of you know, an aberrationally human moment from a, a cop to a person that they've just injured. And another officer came over and pulled them away. And so you see encapsulated in that, in that video, um, what police are taught. I think in terms of our, in terms of our humanity, every time I've ever read about or um, been involved when I've represented family members in a police shooting, the first thing, uh, when I say a police shooting, I mean, when cops shoot other people, the, the first thing the cops do, no matter how severe and life-threatening the injuries are, is to handcuff them, is to handcuff the people they've shot and delay medical treatment until the people are handcuffed. So there, there just are, there are very few, there are very few instances in which we can reasonably conclude cops are there um, to protect us or to keep us safe or to care for us. And I think we see that over and over again. Um, but this moment in, in Uvalde is really just another moment where it's hard to ignore. Um, and we can't let the, we can't let the sort of, you know, public relations, um, cop, copaganda, um, for lack of a better word, kick into effect and make this a unique or aberrational example of the way policing operates in this country. Absolutely. So, uh, so we just have a few more minutes here, and and I just want to conclude uh, by by just asking you um, about about something a little bit different, um, but but still related, uh, it, because it kind of I, I think it kind of you know connects to your work um, a little bit. We can kind of close the circle there. Uh, so you probably heard about this ten um, year old boy who threatened to shoot up his school. Uh, this this I think this happened on Friday. Um, you know, in kind of in the wake, obviously, you know, a, t- a 10-year-old saying something like this is something you, people should be taking seriously. Um, and, you know, hopefully this kid is getting help. Uh, the New York Post uh, decided to take a different approach to that 
uh, and published this 10 year old's mugshot on, on the site. And I, you know, I, I saw that and, and this is why, you know, I, I, I want to get your reaction here because I, you know, I saw that and it made me incredibly angry and upset. And, and I think that the reason is, is that I think, I think that taking this stuff seriously is really, really important. And I think that if somebody says that they're going to commit an act of violence like that, you have to take it seriously, even if they are a child of, of only 10 years old. Obviously, um, the, I would say 99.999% of the time, someone that age making that kind of a threat is just looking for attention, um, but they are trying to express that they are having some kind of problem, some kind of issue. Uh, but you, So you want to find a way to help them. And I think that for the Post, which is already like you know one of the more pro-cop papers, one of the more kind of disgustingly uh, copaganda-esque uh, uh, outlets, uh, one that really drives this the fear of crime tropes and a lot of uh, a lot of racist um, attacks. Uh, for the New York Post to publish this um, mugshot and 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 you know like it, it wasn't a little white kid or it doesn't appear to be you know like like a little white kid, um, it just adds to it. Um, I, I, I just think that it, what it is, is it's just kind of, it's, it's not even giving this kid a chance. You know, this is going to dog this kid for the rest of his life now. Um, and, you know, I, I don't even really know, like, where I'm going with this. It, just that I found it really upsetting, and, I, and, and I'm curious, you know, what you think about that. Uh, if you share that, or if you think that, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if you, I, I, can't, I can't imagine that you would think that this would be good, but, but if you, <laughs> no. maybe, maybe, maybe if you think there's some nuance to it, I don't, I don't know. No, there's no nuance to it. I, and I, I had not seen the New York Post. I, I just Googled it while you were, you were talking and, and saw this. I saw the coverage of the, of the young boy who, did, who made these threats. Um, you know, these, this is, it's hard to ask it's hard to look for a better example of why cops shouldn't be involved in this, right? Like this is not, it's not the criminalizing response that we have to have um, to an event like this. This is a 10 year old child and the, you can see in the interview um, that the sheriff setting up, the chief setting up the logic of why they're going to prosecute him as an adult and acknowledging that the, you know, prevailing silent science around the development of people's brains um, and, and youth children's brains. And, and he, he acknowledges that and then says, but if you pull the trigger, it doesn't matter if you're 10 or you're, you're 50. Um, that's exactly the kind of logic that led us to the, a, a, a nation desensitized to the number of people who are in our jails and prisons and you layer onto that the um, racial aspects to it, the like overtly racist aspects of policing, both in the school context and the street context, and you get these kind of results. This is how we got to the criminalization of youth, um, just to come full circle to what we talked about, the reason cops were in school to begin with. Um, and, and it's not to protect people from being killed, um, all students from being killed. It's a it's a terrifying thing, and I'm pretty sure now that I, I'm, I'm looking at this again that that's the 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 cop that put out the video saying, you know, the TikTok video saying his department would kill immediately anyone who threatened um, a teacher or, or or a child in that area. 
And I think that's exactly the kind of response we want to avoid. We want to ensure that the, our instinct in these tragic moments is not knee-jerk. It doesn't lead to more policing with more weapons, with more arrest power, with broader authority. They already have the broadest authority of any institution in our, in our nation, and they shouldn't be given more, and they shouldn't given, be given more, especially to respond to something that they've been proven incapable of responding to. And the last thing I want to note, and I I think this is something everyone's grappling with, is that um, that the 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 person who killed the children in Uvalde was a child himself, right? And if you do advocacy and leadership development, and you're working with youth who've had contact with the with the legal system, you run into people who have got sort of antisocial um, behaviors developed in part as a result of the experiences they've had in their lives. And our organization works with youth. We don't consider youth to end at 16 or 15 or start at, you know, start at 10. We're talking about children from, you know, five to 22 or 24. The the age at which people um, come into adulthood and developmentally in the brain science has um, shifted over time. So to continue to, we are in a, a moment that does call for nuance and that's how do you respond to a horrific act committed by a child against other children? And the answer isn't with overwhelming policing force for every child who might be in a situation that will lead them to act out in a school because you can see um, and I don't know about the, the details or this, the the, um, the legitimacy of, of this this child's this ten year old's threat, but you can see now the response will be um, draconian, and that's where we're going to go. We're going to have you know the, the fear is without um, programs like yours talking, giving people an opportunity to talk about this, and without the organizing and activism that we see across the country against police being in schools, we're going to see a, a, um, a retrenchment. We're going to see a, a backlash and children are going to be even further, even more criminalized. And it will always be the case that it's poor black and brown children who are um, more criminalized than, than their white counterparts. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful to see this mugshot. It's awful to see him, this child, like, you know, Walk, publicly walked in front of people and have us, you, you are right to say that this will have an impact likely. I mean, it's, you know, we don't know, but like the kind of negative impact this will have on this child. Um, I think we're going to only, only, we're only going to be able to see that later on what happens with this, with this youth who had this experience. And at the same time, it's not the cop who should respond, right? Like if you've got a counselor, if you've got social workers, if you've got people who've created a trusting community within a school, there's an outlet for this. There's a place for people to talk. There's a place for students to feel safe, whether it's talking about something they perceive as a threat from a classmate or it's the class, the child themselves talking about how they're feeling. And you don't have to have police um, to intervene in that moment. Absolutely. Um, do you have a second here? Because we, we got Johnny uh, calling and, and uh, do a really sure. quick call here. Yeah, cool. sure. uh, so, Johnny, if you could just, just keep your, your, your comment to like one minute or so. Sure. 
Sure. Uh, always, always under the context of the current neoliberal era that we're living in. I find it interesting that in the 1930s, the police were called out to, to calm down or to squelch a, uh, a rebellion of the working class. Uh, during the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s, we have what was called embedded liberalism, what was called the golden age of capitalism. And I wonder what your thoughts are on if having, having the culture of policing that that protects the state and not the actual people. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on if we were to somehow overtake and uh, take back our country from the neoliberals, corporations, and oligarchs that control our country, if, in your opinion, would that make a difference in the culture of policing in America, if they'd actually really start to think and believe that they actually serve the people? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's uh, so. That's I'll 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 take that uh, uh, real quick here, uh, and 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 then turn it over uh, to to Thomas. But um, I, you know, I certainly think that uh, changing um, a lot of the surrounding uh, issues, the economic incentives um, within uh, the society that has produced uh, this this aspect of policing uh, would would be helpful. Um, I, I wonder how much of it, um, I wonder how quickly though that, 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 that change would come. Um, uh, Thomas, what do you think? You just unmute yourself there. I, I... Okay. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I don't think you can build the kind of society that, um, you might be imagining, um, and still have police. Um, they, if you, you know, if we're, if we're serious about the origins and history of policing, it's about protecting property, whether that was, you know, during an era of chattel slavery, or if you're just talking about other, if you're just talking about physical property, um, and capital that doesn't go away, whether you've got a, a neoliberal, um, order or a liberal order. Um, it's and then certainly not under a, a authoritarian or, or fascist order. So I, I'm not I'm not convinced at this point that you can build um, the society that many of us want to see if you've got armed people who have license to kill you um, and can utter a few magic words uh, that will get them out of all legal uh, accountability or liability. Um, while that while that still exists, and I think what we're seeing now is a uh, is people waking up to uh, some people waking up, some people deepening their knowledge of just how impossible it could be it will be to build a world where people, um, especially poor black and brown folks, have real autonomy and have the ability to make determinations about their own definitions of what freedom is and what safety is, and so. We're clearly not there yet, but I think that um, as people, as we're just really trying to make these inroads against institutions like policing uh, in all of its forms, we have to consider what the society that we want to build is and what it would look like and, and whether there is any role at all, if it's even possible to build that society, if you preserve uh, a violent force like police in our society. Yeah, that's 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 a fantastic answer. 
Um, and I think that's a good, I think that's a good bow to put on, on this conversation. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Can you, so I know that we talked about your work, uh, in the beginning, but, um, if you want to just kind of, you know, plug where people can find you on social media and, and, uh, where they can, uh, find and support children's defense fund. Yeah, you can uh, find me on on Twitter at at tbh for the number four justice. Um, you can follow us at at cdfca and follow um, Children's Defense. It's at Child Defender, and I would encourage folks to check out the resources. And, and no one I can email them to you, but the resources yeah, available through Advancement Project and DefundPolice.org. Um, they Advancement Projects report on we came to learn is um is is really important here um and i can send that along and then defundpolice.org giving you some resources on uh, some information on how to get involved in campaigns which we, we need people to to participate in organizing and activism to to build this vision of a, a world where people are actually free and safe and so i'll send those along as well great great thank you so much um and I'll just, I'll just do my, my end of episode spiel here. If you're listening on the app, either live or replay, and you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show and or follow me. Uh, if you are listening on replay uh, through syndication on Spotify or on Apple, uh, please be sure to follow and rate the show. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us. We will be back on Thursday, uh, and we'll talk then. All right.